We are continuing our study of Isaiah, and we're, we're moving along here. Um, we're studying Isaiah 1 through 39 this summer. It's written in the last half of the 8th century B.C. This is a little bit of recap information if you've been uh, joining us over the last couple of weeks. Uh, if you're new, it's good to have you here. We're kind of jumping into the middle, but uh, uh, I think you're going to hear some um, important things uh, for us this morning. In Isaiah, we have this mix of both judgment and hope. And uh, what we've been trying to highlight is, you know, some of the things that maybe we need to hear from those judgment parts uh, where Isaiah is writing to Judah and, and, and calling out the ways that they have missed the mark, the ways that they have turned away from Yahweh, the ways that they have failed to be the blessing that they were intended to be. And maybe some of that is echoed in our time, in our way, uh, both in our larger society, but let's be honest, sometimes in the church too. And so uh, we're hearing and learning from those hard judgment parts, but we're also, I hope, hearing the hopeful parts and being encouraged by those hopeful parts. And so we'll continue that. Last week, we looked at Isaiah's call to be God's messenger, how he was purified and set apart for a ministry that was to be faithful, uh, but was told that it would be largely ineffective. In other words, there weren't going to be a lot of people having a come-to-God moment because of Isaiah's uh, message, that their path was, was pretty much already set because of their hardness of heart. Chapters 7 through 12 then begin to get specific about some of the events that were occurring in the days of Isaiah, and in chapter 7, uh, which uh, Miss Bonnie read from a part of this morning, it begins with, in the days of Ahaz, and so we're given kind of a, a timeline marker for this. It's roughly between uh, the 740s and the 720s B.C. That's about when Ahaz was king. And some of the things that are happening in the world around the time of Ahaz is that Assyria is beginning to build its empire. It soon is going to be the dominant world power. And as they are building their empire, the king of Aram and the king of Israel, the king, which is the, the northern kingdom, are attempting to unite some of these smaller kingdoms to fight against Assyria. And so these two kings begin to join together and come and confront and attack Jerusalem. And their plan is to place their own king on the throne in Jerusalem and to force Judah to be part of this, this military alliance against this power of Assyria. We're going to take a look a little bit at the uh, message that Isaiah brings to King Ahaz and also at Ahaz's response. And so as we look at that this morning, would you pray with me? Jesus, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. Would you challenge us? Would you encourage us through your word? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, a little bit of a broad picture of what's happening here in chapters 7 through 12, because it's kind of a, a cohesive unit here in Isaiah. Isaiah is confronting Ahaz and encouraging him to just stay put and to trust God as these armies are coming up against Jerusalem. 
And Isaiah goes to him, and he, like I said, he wants him just to, to chill out, to stay put, to put his trust in God. We see Assyria will end up coming as a tool of judgment against Judah. And yet there's a glimmer of hope uh, that a new king will emerge. Sorry, there's a little bit of a wind up here. Isaiah goes out to meet Ahaz, who is inspecting the city's defenses and, and their preparations for this siege that's coming. Uh, Ahaz is actually inspecting the, um, the uh, what's, what fountain, the, uh, the, the stream that, that's provided Jerusalem with its, with its water, and he's making sure that they have secured that area so that uh, if the siege comes, they still have access to water. And Isaiah goes to meet him, and he takes his, his son. This is a, Isaiah has some fun names for his kids. Um, I would never suggest these names for my own children. Uh, they have meanings in their names, but maybe not quite so uh, graphically illustrated. Isaiah takes his son, Shear Jashub. Uh, and Isaiah, his other son that we'll meet later in the chapter is Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Um, Could have gone with... John could have gone with, you know, Isaiah this junior or something like that. But he, he, he bakes some imagery and some symbolism into the names of his sons. Uh, our sons, Jameson, James' son. My grandfather's name was James. Sorry, it's a little, little loud. All right. Uh, James' son, my middle name is James. My grandfather's name was James, and so... He, we kind of played off that, riffed off that, James' son. Uh, Garrett, uh, Katie's dad's name is Gary, and uh, my father's name is David, and so we got Garrett David. Uh, that's his name. Um, he gets both of those names used frequently, um, as you can imagine. And uh, so that's the symbolism of our kids' names, not quite the same kind of symbolism that Isaiah includes in his son's name. Sher Jashub means a remnant will return. And so in the naming of his son, Isaiah is both giving you the bad news and the good news. He's proclaiming that a remnant will continue. And remember, this is coming before all of the bad stuff has really started to happen to Jerusalem. And so when, they, when Isaiah says a remnant will continue, the people in Jerusalem will, will, would wonder, well, why only a remnant? Aren't we a mighty people? Aren't we, aren't we the chosen people of Yahweh? Why, why only a remnant? And yet at the same time, that is good news. As, as the story unfolds and, and Judah and Jerusalem are being attacked, as they are suffering this, this persecution, as they go through exile, and they look back at the words of Isaiah, and they look back at the family of Isaiah, they are being reminded that, yes, a remnant will continue. So bad news, good news, a mix of judgment, a mix of hope. Judah was used to thinking of itself as a mighty tree, and soon they will be reduced to a smoldering stump. And yet the good news is that there will be a remnant to remain. The covenants will remain intact. Well, Isaiah tells King Ahaz not to fear and to trust that Yahweh will continue to preserve Judah and Jerusalem. And he tells 
Ahaz to stay put. He says that Aram, uh, which is the, the kingdom of Syria, and Ephraim, uh, which is the, the leading tribe in Israel, will end up as conquered people, and that Ephraim will be shattered as a people. Following the exile, uh, the northern kingdom will really cease to be uh, a coherent, distinctive people. And so Isaiah's advice to Ahaz actually makes some military sense. If Ahaz trusts Yahweh and stays put, these two kings would uh, probably would, be a, would not be able to sustain a long siege because they would be leaving their own kingdoms vulnerable to the Assyrians. Sometimes the way of following and trusting is moving forward. And sometimes the way of trusting and following God is staying put. And I don't have a magical formula for you to like figure that out. It comes in discernment. It comes in, in prayer. It comes in immersing ourselves in God's word. It comes in uh, surrounding ourselves with the body of Christ and discerning together how God's spirit is moving or staying put in that time. Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, in this moment, what you are being called to do is stay put and do nothing. Yahweh tells Ahaz to ask for a sign in order to prove himself. Ahaz says that he doesn't want to put God to the test, which is one of the commandments. And so, you know, you, you might say, Ahaz, well, you know, that's good that you've memorized those commandments. But in this moment, Yahweh's saying, test me. Try me out on this. See if I'm going to be faithful to you. And when Ahaz refuses to provide his own uh, test, Yahweh uh, is not really thrilled at Ahaz's attempt at piety. And so Yahweh responds, I'm tired of this game. I'll give you a sign myself. And we hear these words from God. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before you, whose two kings you are in dread, will be deserted. The Lord, Yahweh, will bring on you and on your people and on your ancestral house such days as have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah. Now let me talk a little bit about the nature of prophetic future-telling. Not all who claim to be prophets were equal. And we see glimpses in the Old Testament where there's like these court prophets who would basically tell the king the things he wanted to hear. They wouldn't speak the truth. They wouldn't give an accurate representation of what Yahweh really intended. They were more or less yes men. And yet there were faithful prophets who were uh, immersing themselves in prayer, who were called and sent by God, and, and uh, they would often bring hard truth. And when they told the future, the way you knew a prophet was really from God is if the things they said came true, if they actually got lived out. And so Isaiah's 
uh, place as a prophet is recognized because his prophecy here in Isaiah 7 is recognized to come true. And not just 700 years after the fact, but also 700 years after the fact. Now, hear me out on this. Don't fire me right away as I start to walk through this passage, okay? Because we read the young woman will give birth. And we often hear uh, some translations say the virgin will give birth. And Matthew says the virgin will give birth. All right? The Hebrew uses the word for young woman. The later Greek translation of this passage uh, uses the word for virgin. It is a very specific term. Hebrew also has a specific term, but the Hebrew writer didn't use that term. Isaiah does not use that term. Okay? That Greek translation is what Matthew uses when talking about the virgin is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. But when Isaiah first gives this prophecy, when he first says, For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread, in other words, the king of Aram and Israel, will be deserted. And so the immediate prophecy of Isaiah indicates a child who will be born soon, who they will identify as fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. The young woman here is not identified. Some scholars think it could possibly be the wife of Isaiah, who will soon have a son, who Isaiah gives a very creative name to. It could also be the wife of Ahaz, who will have a son, and who will have a son, and who will have a son, and King Hezekiah will come and for a moment rescue God's people. And so when Isaiah says this child will be given, it must have a historical, identifiable fulfillment of the prophecy around the time of Isaiah. Because waiting for 700 years would cause a lot of people to doubt Isaiah's future-telling ability. You know, I remember, well, I don't actually remember. I remember hearing stories of people writing books uh, around the 1980s. And it was, you know, 84 reasons for 1984 and why this was going to be the end of the world. I was born in 84, so maybe it was the end of the world and uh, you're just stuck with me. I don't know. But it appears that the end of the world has not come yet. And so that prophecy probably wasn't true. Uh, I think that writer then wanted to like say, I, I was off by a year, I redid the math, it's actually 85. 85 came and went, and we haven't reached the end of the world yet. All right. So if we would have waited 700 years for that to happen, we might have some serious questions for that prophecy. But the passage here, this imagery that is happening in Isaiah that, that is built upon by uh, later New Testament prophets uh, or Old Testament prophets and that is worked into the New Testament passage is building on this image of a remnant, building on the image of a Messiah, of one to come and bring a fuller version of the prophet's vision. See, I think... Isaiah's vision, his prophecy, comes true in some sense soon after. In some way, they realize, they are encouraged, 
that God is with them in that moment. And yet what happens in the New Testament is we see a much fuller, uh, broader, uh, better picture of what it means for God to be with us in Jesus. And so Yahweh is providing for the defense of the people in ancient Israel. He is telling them that God is with us. Emmanuel is meant to reassure King Ahaz and the people that God will provide a rescue. Instead, Ahaz will look for his own way out. He decides that a military alliance with Assyria is, is better for him and better for his people. And, and what happens because he goes and he tries to do things his own way is it's going to have major repercussions for the people of Judah. They are going to become, um, they're going to owe a lot to Assyria. It is going to bankrupt their country. It is going to put them in debt to Assyria because Ahaz didn't listen, because he didn't stay put, because he didn't trust that God was actually with them in that moment. That's a story that gets repeated throughout Scripture, where people try to do things on their own, and it doesn't usually work out in their favor when they try to do things on their own outside of God's will. And that's, a, that's something that gets lived out in my own life, I'm going to assume has happened in your own life, where you try to do things on your own. You try to push God, or you try to go against God, and it doesn't work out well. We are reminded that God is with us. Ahaz is supposed to stay put and trust Emmanuel, that God is with us. And so the New Testament writers, they, they start to see this theme of one to come, of a Savior to come, of, of God with us in a bigger way. The empires change. Who is subjecting the people or oppressing the people changes. And yet the New Testament writers and Jesus also are talking about how oppression isn't just to a military uh, empire, but really an, an oppression from forces opposed to the reign of God in sin and in death. And so the writers of the gospel see how Yahweh is again providing rescue for all people. And the, the New Testament writer in Matthew says, wants to remind us of Emmanuel, that God is still with us. And while there may be a more direct historical fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of a child born to a young woman, there is certainly a grander theological fulfillment that neither God nor Matthew wants us to miss. And for me, I think that God steps up his game in Jesus, in the sending of Jesus as Emmanuel. And so God wants to avoid any confusion of whether this is just a young woman or whether this is a, a, a virgin. And so he affirms the, the story that, that Matthew says, a virgin will give birth. And Matthew goes to great detail in laying out the lineage and the timeline for Jesus' conception and birth. And so it's not just a young woman, it is a virgin that God chooses. He wants to, wants to make sure we don't miss the point in the New Testament. 
Isaiah keeps reminding Ahaz and the people that Emmanuel, God is with us. You and I know Emmanuel in Jesus. So how do we continue to experience Emmanuel, God with us? You know, as I've been reading Isaiah, um, and I, as I look at the world around us, I think there's some things that we need to, to share and be honest about. We talked about Isaiah's call last week that he would go to a people that wouldn't hear, that would not understand and would keep on going down the path that they were on. Judah's path was set. And I would like to hope that our path in the West and our path as the American church is not already set. But to be honest with you, I'm not sure that that's the honest answer. This past year has been a difficult year in a number of ways that we've recapped over and over. And I don't feel like I need to recap for you again. Just think about what the last year has been like for you. Think about what the last year has been like in our society. It's nothing new that I need to tell you that there were hardships in the last year. And it has been uncomfortable for many of us. But in the midst of it, in the lockdowns, in the turmoil, in the political conflict, conflict, in the masks, the, the whole bit, I am reminded that Emmanuel, God is with us. And whatever we face, whatever is in store for our future in the church, in the United States, whatever is in store for us in, in this country, that God is with us. That God continues to walk with us. That God continues to challenge us and confront us with our shortcomings, and yet also offer a glimmer of hope. And not only is God with us in a big sense for the body of Christ, but God is also with us and with you. I want you to know the lengths that God has gone to in order to reveal that God is with you. Because a virgin conceived and bore a son and named him Yeshua. God will save. God saves. He came to fulfill the prophecies and promises of the Hebrew Bible, not just Isaiah, but others. He came in order to rescue and heal and show us how to live in complete trust of God. He died on a Roman cross in the place of sinners. He died. He was buried, and three days later, he conquered the last enemy, which is death, in order that we all may have real, healed, whole life, connected and restored to God and to one another. The good news that Isaiah proclaims in this passage, Emmanuel, God is with us. This is the same good news that Matthew tells his listeners in the first century. And this is the same good news I tell you today. Emmanuel, God is 
with us. God is still with us. And God will be with us. Emmanuel. God saves in Jesus. This is the good news. Amen? As you go this week, know that God is with you. Know that Emmanuel is not just something for the days of Isaiah, is not just something for the days of Matthew, but is something for our day in the struggles that we face in the world that we live in. Folks, God is with us. Go in peace.